Though they've each already done a lot, one point of common ground for Curtis Chang and Julie Zausmer is that they're alums of Harvard College. Curtis graduated in 1990 and went on to win a Rockefeller Fellowship to found a consulting firm to teach at both American University and Harvard University, to write a book entitled Engaging Unbelief, and finally to become an evangelical pastor, now turned seminary instructor at Duke Divinity School and Fuller Seminary. Julie graduated in 2013 after serving as managing editor for The Crimson, Harvard's daily student newspaper, before a brief stint at the Philadelphia Inquirer and then a flourishing career at The Washington Post. First for four years at the Religion Desk and more recently covering D.C. government and in particular this past year, its citywide COVID policy beat. Julie has an eye for staying curious and looking at what's out of sync. In 2013, she published a fascinating book about the true story of a con artist who faked his way into the Ivy League, entitled Conning Harvard. Both her book and Curtis's is linked in the show notes, along with links to a new project Curtis launched in early March called Christians and the Vaccine. That project is the springboard for today's conversation, and it emerged after Curtis and several close friends grew increasingly puzzled and then disheartened by attitudes among religious Americans toward the COVID vaccine, which had been celebrated as a breakthrough. Why were short videos on TikTok viewed in massive numbers, casting doubt on the vaccine's safety and legitimacy? Were our contemporary social media silos motivating fellow parishioners to consume only what reinforced existing biases as we click, click, clicked again on various YouTube and Reddit or Facebook videos? If the threshold for herd immunity is between 70 and 90% of adults vaccinated, is it possible that as Americans, we'll completely botch the end game? Here's what Julie sees around the corner. I think I tend to be fairly cynical about some of the predictions we've heard that sound really rosy. The idea that vaccines are going to be available to every adult in America on May 1st. I think that there's going to be political pressure to open the appointment system such that any adult technically is eligible. Do I think that any adult's going to be able to walk into a pharmacy and get a shot? No way. I hope I'm proven wrong, but I think we are far from out of the woods here. Back in the Bay Area, where he teaches and previously preached, Curtis became convinced that religious communities needed faith-informed answers, or at least religious reasoning. He sees evangelicals asking distinct questions from a distinct culture, one that may differ from Jews or Catholics or Sikhs or Baha'i or Muslims or Native Americans. So, like a hard-charging consultant, he first listened, took notes, and then dived into the best science he could find on stem cell lines and pro-life arguments on the mark of the beast, on debates over fake news labels, and whether we should trust the government or trust NIH scientists. And with journalists in mind, he argues it's a public service in our times to write in such a way that both remembers and honors the deeply diverse religiosity of readers. Pathway to ending the pandemic goes through religion. Uh, and it goes through evangelicals especially, but it goes through religion. And any coverage and analysis that fails to at least factor that in I think is missing a key part of the picture. This is a conversation about the path to ending COVID, still far from over, and the strange role of faith in that equation.
Well, I'm very excited for this conversation because what I've been doing for the past several months has been answering questions from readers who are desperate to get a vaccine. And they have so many questions about where and when and how they can get one. And I know as I'm doing this that at some point that story is going to change. At some point, and we are not there yet in D.C., but at some point, everyone who wants a vaccine is going to be able to get one. And then the next challenge is very different. The next challenge is how do you get vaccines to people who are not desperately asking reporters how to get one? They're a little bit ambivalent right now or they're outright opposed. And we need them to reach herd immunity, to return to normal in this country. We're going to need a lot more people than the people who just really want the vaccine right now off the bat. And that's something that I have not yet been focused on or been working on. I've been working on getting answers for the people who want their shots. So I'm really excited for this conversation to learn more about the next challenge. Yeah, maybe, Curtis, you could just tell us a little bit about the why of your project. I mean, it seems like you just kind of got up and did something like Tocquevillian sort of can-do spirit. Why did you choose to take this on? Who, who are those you're trying to reach and what's the pushback? I'm exactly trying to reach the people that Julie is starting to recognize is the real issue. I started this project because really only about a few months ago, but as I was looking at the numbers and also in my own knowledge of the evangelical community, it was clear to me that the path to ending the pandemic runs through evangelicals, specifically white evangelicals. The path to ending the pandemic runs through white evangelicals. The most recent research absolutely confirms this, that the single largest block of folks who are hesitant, suspicious of the vaccine are white evangelicals. The numbers aren't even close. And when the polling started, it was conservative Christians and blacks that were tied in terms of resistance. Blacks have clearly moved the meter for a number of reasons, especially because of leadership from the religious black community, such that now when you look at the polls, the most recent poll from the Pew Research data 54% of white evangelicals say they're planning to get the vaccine, with the others saying they're probably not getting the vaccine. So the close, next closest numbers are black Christians at 64% favorable, and that number has been climbing significantly in the last month alone. And then after that, it's we're all in the 70s and 80s with the other religious groups, with Catholics. Atheists are at 90%. Catholics are at 77%. White evangelicals are, are the outlier. And they also numerically are the largest numbers of that group, right? So if you're looking at estimates of of evangelicals as something in the 30% category of the American populace, if we're talking about 50% at this point, and those numbers haven't budged also, those those numbers have not moved. If you're talking about 50%, that number alone gets you darn close to black as as an obstacle to herd immunity. I mean, Fauci is revising his estimates constantly, but he's saying right now, he's thinking it's about 80% is the latest numbers that I've seen of vaccination rates that are needed. You know, so so evangelicals alone basically present the biggest roadblock to achieving vaccination rates necessary for herd immunity. Why are evangelicals looking at this so differently from Catholics or from Black Christians? What is it that is different? That's a great question, and it probably, to explain my particular perspective on this, it's probably helpful to just explain my own background, and this gets to Josh's question of why I'm doing this. So I'm long-time, long-time career in ministry, Christian ministry to evangelicals, including being a senior pastor of an evangelical covenant church. And I'm still a member of that church now, even though I move more into theological work, equipping other pastors. And so both from my own experience as a pastor and my current work in equipping other pastors, 
it's clear to me that there's a set of concerns that Christians have, evangelicals especially have, that are not being addressed by the classic public health messaging. The classic public health messages are giving you facts about the vaccine and its safety, which is important. It is part of the problem is that white evangelicals are prone to the misinformation that's swirling through our wider society this day. So, so there is something of an information problem for sure, but there's also a deeper set of spiritual worldviews that evangelicals have that make them especially susceptible to suspicion of the vaccine. So they tend to be much more suspicious to government and government programs, government control. They've experienced the government as intrusive, as preventing them from worshiping together or because of public health regulations, singing and worshiping together by wearing masks, you know. So then they have some legitimate complaints. You know, there's a Supreme Court case with the, in the state of Nevada where casinos were allowed to gather, but churches were not. And evangelicals took that as a confirmation of their fears that the government simply devalues and diminishes religion against all other values, including casino tax receipts, right? So, but then there's also even more complicated issues, like there's the pro-life issue, the sense that the vaccines have a connection to abortion. And without getting into the, uh, I mean, and because they don't, they haven't had any guidance on the specifics of that issue, they just hear that there's a connection. Then the other spiritual dynamic of evangelicals, which is the strong emphasis on purity, kicks in. And the idea that, oh, I can't even touch that thing because it has some connection to the vaccine. And, you know, as an illustration of how strong this purity impulse is, we just saw in, the, in our, as we're taping today, we're at, in the taping the aftermath of the Atlanta shootings. And that shooter was a Southern Baptist who, at least his stated intent, was a purity motivation there. And it just shows you the extent that which that can trigger white evangelicals to take extreme actions. And so there's that dimension. There's complex theological issues that, Frankly, I, I couldn't possibly expect a secular public health agency to understand. There's a large segment of white evangelicals that view, read the Bible in a way that causes them to fear this thing called the mark of the beast that is noted in the book of Revelation. And you won't believe how much of the fear around the vaccine centers around this fear that getting injected by the, by the vaccine is getting tagged by the mark of the beast. So th that, those are concerns that only other evangelicals, other Christians can address thoughtfully. And that's why I thought I've got to at least do my part to try to speak to that, because I don't think this is something that secular public health can actually speak sort of empathetically and persuasively on. I mean, I've seen just, you know, on TikTok, on YouTube, I've come across these messages saying in very clever, catchy ways saying this is the mark of the beast and don't be so dumb as to get this vaccine. Don't fall for it. Other than what you're doing, where are you seeing good messages out there that talk about getting vaccinated in a moral term? Talk about you know, your responsibility to your neighbors and to the moral dimensions of this. Yes. So there are some organizations that are mobilizing around this. BioLogos is the organization founded by Francis Collins that's been doing some excellent work on this. The challenge, I think, has been that the thoughtful evangelical voice has tended to be in print, like you know, long blogs and articles and so forth, or very long video content. You have hour-long interviews between Francis Collins and Rick Warren, and I think it's an hour and a half or something like that. So these are long, thoughtful, discursive conversations, whereas the what I call the less thoughtful side of this issue are they're doing the TikTok videos. <laughs> they're doing the they're doing the short form video content. That is frankly the currency of information this these days for most people. 
And so we, by those that are trying to promote the vaccine in the Christian side, we're playing on the wrong terrain in terms of this issue. And that's why I created the videos in that format that I did. I created short, and they're still probably on the longer side, you know, but they're still like six to 12 minute long videos that are each taking one of these issues. So we have a video on Mark of the Beast, a dedicated video on that, because that's how people are consuming information these days, is they're passing along short videos and no one's passing along an hour and a half, you know, recorded interview of even as wonderful as Francis Collins. So that's, that's, that's why we're trying to move things onto that terrain. Yeah, it was interesting to me in reviewing the Christians in the Vaccine sort of portfolio of, of short videos that you were able to take on particular concerns so precisely, you know, the mark of the beast, the worry about pro-life and, and sort of stem lines, fake news being another one, sort of specifically that antagonism that exists between some evangelicals and, and mainstream media. But framing it all was this idea of distrust, that there is a sort of deep distrust of institutions that seems to have pervaded contemporary American evangelicalism, whether that's the fundamentalist strain or, or more broadly. And I wonder if you could, could unpack that a little bit. I mean, people who are uh, millennials today have experienced some cause for distrust. They've seen abuse in the church in both Catholic and evangelical spaces. They've experienced the, the Iraq war not going as they thought it would, the no weapons of mass destruction. They've, they've witnessed the economy taking major downturns. Oh, and they've witnessed the Trump years and, and some character worries and the like. They've experienced COVID. There's lots of reason in some sense for distrust, particularly amongst younger evangelicals. If the tribe was born as a sort of rebellion against the Catholic Church, after all, what about pastoral voices that you're trying to reach could restore trust? What should restore trust, and where, where should there be a distrust? It's a great point, Josh. And you're right, as you rightly pointed out, evangelicalism in its very DNA has a sense of distrust of the established institutions, especially in the secular realm. And the litany of ways in which institutions have failed us is, is hard to deny. At the same time, I do think there's no way of getting to a place of taking the vaccine without actually addressing this issue head on, because it is ultimately an issue of institutional trust. Not, I suspect that not one of the three of us here could actually break down the science of the vaccine in a comprehensive way such that, you know, we don't run out of steam after about one minute of, of material, right? <laughs> it's just the science, we're not scientists. Ultimately, when it all, everything comes down to is, we're going to take the vaccine because we trust the institutions and the experts saying this is safe and it's good for us. And even at the statistics that we would cite for that, we're citing because we trust they've been reported correctly. And so it ultimately all comes down to trust. And part of what I'm trying to do in this video, in the videos, is address the, these specific issues, but also call Christians to a biblical understanding of trust. That trust is critical to how we know anything. To how human beings know anything requires trust. To use the fancy theological and philosophical term, human epistemology requires trust. We can't know anything without extending trust in some way. And the biblical theological point I'm trying to make in these videos is that's the way God designed things. God designed us to know things through trust. God designed us to know God himself through trust. That's what faith is. It's an extension of trust in God. That we, and we cannot know God without making that step. And the way that God designs human society, when you read the biblical, the overarching biblical narrative, starting with the Hebrew scriptures, there's trust all the way through, right? Human beings are not meant to actually know, 
to navigate the world by themselves. They have to rely on the prophets, the priests, the kings to actually help them interpret reality for them. Jesus sends out his great commission with the expectation that the gospel is going to spread because the world is going, is going to be willing to trust the testimony of his experts, of his disciples, the ones that he's authorized with that message. So I'm trying to recapture for Christians that trust is embedded in our, in our faith narrative and tradition, and we've got to recapture that. Of course, no human institution or human expert is perfect, that they are flawed. That's expected. But just like we have to trust human individuals in our lives, our spouses, our friends, who are flawed and imperfect themselves, to know them, we still have to trust them and know what the, the truth they have to give. In the same way, we still have to trust flawed human institutions and experts. And that doesn't mean blindly following them, but it means extending trust in a ways that we currently are in short supply. I'm interested in what you've heard from some of those authorities like pastors who are more trusted already off the bat in the evangelical community. I know you know, back in 2016, we heard a lot, rightly or wrongly, but we heard a lot of people claiming that the people in the pews were supporting President Trump, and they weren't hearing that message from the pulpit, that this was coming from somewhere else. I wonder if that's what you're hearing again with the vaccine, or if you're hearing pastors giving their Sunday sermons saying, oh, hold off on this shot. Julie, that is such a perceptive question. And so I'm a senior, I was a former senior pastor of a church in the Bay Area, right? So progressive left area. I know right now, if I got on Sunday morning, I gave a sermon encouraging everybody to get a vaccine. I know I can tell you exactly what is going to happen. On Monday morning, I've got five emails in my inbox from people very upset with me. And it's going to be about the pro-life issue. It's going to be about government control. There's going to be one there about Mark of the Beast. I can almost name for you the people that I, who are going to send me those emails, right? And I know those emails are going to be the ones that are, I'm just dreading. Because I know if I answer those emails, I've lost about a day of my productivity, just going back and forth and back and forth. And so there's incredibly strong disincentives for me to preach about this issue because of the, of the blowback. Even And this is from me in the Bay Area. You can imagine somebody in Texas or North Carolina or you know Georgia or something like that. And the statistics have shown how muzzled pastors feel in speaking about, Christian pastors feel about public issues. There's a recent Barna report uh, a few years ago that on a survey, an anonymous survey of pastors, showed that 50% of them felt muzzled, felt silenced about speaking about on public issues for fear of critique. Not critique from externally, internal critique from their issues. So now in this polarized environment, even if your church is like mine, where it's like 50-50 or even more, that 25, let's say even it's 25% of anti-vaccine, you just don't want to go there. And then if it's 50% or more, you're like, I could get fired for this or have to deal with an incredible amount of blowback. So the pastors are incredibly muzzled and fearful of wading into the public realm. And obviously, this, the, what happened this past year with the election, January 6th and all that, has made it even more scary for pastors to venture into that. And that is precisely why I created the videos the way I did, because it is, it is asking too much. I'm speaking this as a former senior pastor. It is asking too much to say to the senior pastors of the, of the church, go up there on Sunday morning and go preach on this topic. It's too ha big of an ask. And so what I'm trying to do is create short, shareable videos that a pastor, when they get that email in their inbox, asking them about that, they can just say, 
Pierre, Bill, here's a, here's a video, a short video that I think you should take a look at. I think it's making some good points. And the videos do the heavy lifting, so the pastor isn't wasting the day answering, <laughs> answering those questions. And if, if Bill is going to get mad, Bill's going to get mad at me. You know, I, I figured not at the pastor. Uh, so, you know, that's why we want to create the video so that we could be a tool for pastors so that they don't have to do the heavy rhetorical lifting and we can take the flack. And what are you finding in the early rollout? I mean, are, 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 are most people resonating? You're a couple of weeks in, right, uh, to this sort of formal rollout of this campaign. Are you finding most people are generally sort of agree- agreeing and, and, and coming alongside? Is there is there harsh pushback that you wouldn't have expected, that you did expect? And uh, yeah, what sort of surprised you? What's the, what's the best case counter argument that you're, that you're uncovering? Yeah, great question. So I'll try to take some of those. Uh, I think overall, the po- response has been really both encouraging and discouraging. I would say it's, it's been, uh, we've gotten a lot of feedback from people saying, thank you so much. This is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to forward it on to my friend. We've had multiple people say, I forwarded I, one A friend of mine who's a nurse said she forwarded it on to a friend, and a friend came back and said, who was not planning to take the vaccine, and almost immediately came back and said, okay, that really gave me a lot to think about. And then turning too quickly, I think I'm going to take the vaccine. And that's the key. That's the key is my videos or any PSA or any blog piece consumed in isolation by an individual, I don't really think that's going to change people's minds in any meaningful way. The magic recipe is when somebody, to convert, if you will, a vaccine doubter, is when somebody they personally trust forwards them the information. That's the key recipe. If they just come across it on their own, it might may move the meter a little, but the, what really changes is when they receive it from some trusted person. And that's another reason why we, we created the videos the way we did, is to try to give, even just beyond pastors, the average Christian who is pro-vaccine, but who has family members, who has friends, who are vaccine doubtful, this is a way for them to actually share the information and reopen the conversation. I mean, in this era where there has been such great polarization, I mean, people of different sort of political or cultural perspectives, we've all retreated into our shells. And that's really dangerous because in, the, in this issue of the vaccine, because the people who are vaccine doubtful, they're getting so much of their information from very narrow sources that I think are very prone to misinformation. The main way they're going to get information that I think is solid, rational, fact-based, science-based is going to be from friends and family members. And one of the ways to reopen the lines of communication is just, hey, I came across this video, forward it along. Because that's how we naturally exchange stuff, exchange information these days. And so we're trying to leverage that. So what we found is that we've been very surprised, not, not surprised, we've been very sort of confirmed that this is working, that the personal trusted relationship plus short shareable content is a very potent recipe. So that's working. What's been discouraging is just the depth of, of the hostility that we're also generating as well. I mean, this is, we're clearly touching a nerve. And that's actually, I guess that's also encouraging in some ways because you're, you're hitting something. But, but the depth of, of the, especially in sort of the hardcore anti-vaxxer and how difficult it is for them to process discourse, even one that I'm, where I'm trying to com- communicate, hey, I'm taking your concerns seriously. I'm not dismissing it. I'm not writing you off. I want you to just consider these things. That's, it's still difficult for a certain segment to process that. 
Julie, I'm curious to just maybe turn to you for just a moment and ask if about 13.5% of the country today is African-American. And Curtis was naming earlier how there's been movement that's been been positive in that community toward a greater receptivity to take the vaccine. Maybe pastors even playing a role in that. You know, I, I'd be curious to, to ask if you've seen any of that in play in, in Washington, D.C., where 47% of the, of the city is African-American and where maybe half or so attend congregations today. I don't know the exact number there, but it's close. Should pastors be playing a role in encouraging congregants to take advantage of the resources that Mayor Bowser and other are, are, others are, are rolling out? How do you see that as a as a journalist, and what do you see actually happening in the trenches? In D.C., absolutely. We have pastors, in particular Black pastors, who are very much leaders on this issue, who have opened up their churches for vaccination clinics. There have been quite a few churches, especially in neighborhoods that have been very hard hit by the virus, where they have members of their churches who've been sick, they have members who've died, they take this very, very seriously. And in those neighborhoods, churches have been opening their doors and saying, host a vaccine clinic here. And it's been very effective, in particular for people who maybe have transportation challenges and can't get to Safeway or Giant very easily, but they go to church every Sunday. And if their church has a vaccine clinic, they know how to get there. So that's been really, really helpful. I think it's not huge numerically. There haven't been that many vaccines available to distribute to these churches, but I know there are people in the city who recognize this, who think the minute we get more doses, this is where some of them need to go because this is really working. Julie, I have a question for you since you cover also, I assume, you know, from what I can read of your articles, you're interviewing and talking to secular public health officials as well. How much do you think they get the white evangelical audience and their concerns? It's a great question. I know my background before I started covering DC almost a year ago, I covered religion for four years. And I know I frequently felt like nobody gets religion. I, you know, I was always exaggerating it because <laughs> I was deeply enmeshed in this little world, but I did feel frequently the problem of officials who need to understand religious communities just don't. In DC, I think that problem is less. Then elsewhere, we have a much smaller percentage of evangelicals than almost anywhere else in the country. We also have a long, proud tradition of Black Christians leading the city government, in particular Black Catholics. There have been many a Catholic mayor, including our current mayor, who you know is great at talking about her faith and talking about, you know, she was discussing how she was going to handle Easter in a pandemic, Christmas in a pandemic, these things that were important to her, she was very real about telling people, this is a struggle for me to not be able to do the things that I normally do, and this is what I'm doing instead, and I hope you will. And there were churches who absolutely were resistant to that. There have been a couple of churches that have sued the city over gathering restrictions. The Museum of the Bible is here and is not happy about the restrictions on them. They've also threatened a lawsuit. It's not like it's gone smoothly because our leaders are good at talking about faith, but our leaders are, are okay at talking about faith. You often see Dr. Nesbitt, who's the city's health director, wearing a cross at her press conferences, and I think that's intentional. Yeah, I've wondered if there's also 
a kind of pluralism aspect to this whole thing. Uh, Rod Dreher talking about sort of virtue signaling to my own team, and that's why I'm going to be mask-free, and that's we have that solidarity, those of us who are maybe sometimes, whatever, feeling red, leaning Trump, but maybe not just that. Certain states uh, bent that way a little bit more. And wondering if, while journalism isn't a form of public service, it is partly a form of public service, right? Yeah, it's not only, right, alone, but it, but it is it is a certain form of public service. And with the pluralism concern in mind, a lot of people say the only institutions that really work across deep difference are the military and maybe settings where there's been a terrorist attack or a massive fire and out of the ashes, we must sort of find a way through. And so it seems to me unlikely that former President Trump would come back to the White House and, and do a deal with Joe Biden and, and get vaccinated on television or, or bring Taylor Swift or Oprah or Bono or something like that, right? Getting cultural icons involved. But if it got really, really bad, maybe. But I guess I'm curious to ask as a problem of pluralism, whether there is a kind of political partisanship that is such a deep divide that we're just not willing to come to the middle. I mean, I don't know how you say that this didn't get really, really bad. This got really bad. I mean, you look at the way that we have, nobody in this country for the past year has been unaffected by this. Everybody has lost a loved one, has lost work, has lost opportunities, has lost the time with the people they love. It's hard to say this wasn't a massive disaster. And there are times that you you could imagine this all going differently. You could imagine we did pull together and say, this is a time to set partisanship aside and this is a time to focus on what will get us out of this disaster. And that's not what happened. And maybe it causes us to rethink our ideas about how people respond to disasters, in particular to slow-moving ones. This has been a year. Well, I, I think le- this is where leadership matters so significantly, how leadership, different leadership could have actually reshaped our whole response to this. And I think the masking controversy is a great... I mean, the masking controversy was actually one of the things that prompted me to take action on this, because I saw what happened there. You know, masking, which is this most commonsensical public health measure. I mean, this is a respiratory disease it makes sense that you mask. Well, this shouldn't even be a controversy, right? And yet, how that got absorbed in the culture wars, and as Rod, you know, in his statement, it became a, a condensed symbol of resistance to the secular, left, progressive, elite superstructure, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like that mask became this very potent symbol of that. And I just saw. And here is where you know the political secular political leaders capitalize on that, but some of the blame falls on religious leaders like myself. We, to use the beltway parlance, we did not get ahead of that. We did not get ahead of it. We didn't see that coming. And once we once it started on roll, we didn't step in front of that train and try to stop it because we were paralyzed ourselves and we were afraid. And, you know, all the dynamics I've, I've talked about in terms of how pastors feel muzzled. And so it was realizing that the vaccine had a strong likelihood of going down that same road if Christian leaders did not step to the fore and say, this is, we've got to re-narrate the vaccine, recode the vaccine such that it doesn't get absorbed into the culture wars in the way that masks did. And I think it's critical we do that now. The longer that you leave it under, unaddressed, the more it solidifies in people's minds, and the more it gets harder to dislodge once it becomes that condensed symbol of, this is my stand against progressivism and wokeism and leftism and et cetera, all the other isms. And so this is the moment for Christian leaders 
to actually do the hard work of stepping the forward. Even if the hard work is just sharing a video, darn it, do something. You've got to actually put something of your social capital on the line here, even if it is really just, yeah, sharing sharing a video. I hope you're inspiring people to do that. I find that whole concept you're talking about of pastors feeling muzzled, feeling afraid to talk about what they truly believe, just so deeply depressing, honestly. I mean, I'm, I'm not evangelical. I'm not a Christian. I'm coming from a different faith perspective. But from my perspective, that's practically the entire job is using the morals and the ethics and the traditions and the teachings that you know and you've studied, applying those moral lessons to today. If you can't do that, you know, what, what's your purpose? And from my perspective, I, I think this is really important, this issue you've hit on. This ties to the pluralism point, which is that we've got to create a healthy place where religious views on public issues are allowed. I mean, it is not just the muzzling, internal muzzling of the church. That is there. But it's also the broader cultural ethos that, hey, don't mix religion and politics, such that any religious view on a public issue, even by the, in the secular realm, is viewed out of court, right? And so, all, so both externally and internally, pastors are like, look, I'm going to get blasted internally by my congregation. And then somebody from the outside is saying, is t- saying I'm preaching politics or preaching, you know, I'm mixing my public, uh, public with religion should just be a private affair, right? So this does get to the very heart of the meaning of pluralism, that we have to recapture this notion both within the church and in the public square that religion is part of the public square, you know, and an issue like the vaccine, which is a public issue, it is a public health issue, has religious dimensions that if you ignore, you ignore at everyone's peril. It's interesting to consider the sort of dualism pressure that a pastor also feels in being, you know, maybe motivated to speak to the safe stuff, to speak to theology, to speak to what isn't going to get him in trouble versus the broader issues of the public square of the day, etc. And I, I think it's so interesting, your encouragement that we consider not a video, but a video in relationship, not a talking point or a pamphlet from the public health department alone, but that message in in relationship because we live out of our hearts and not out of our minds, as the famous saying goes. And so I, I'm curious to ask, what would you say if you're trying to persuade someone, maybe a generation above, maybe a friend who who had COVID and says it wasn't that bad, actually, but I'm, I'm low risk as a result of having had it already? Uh, what would you say to to nudge that person to get the vaccine? Well, I can, I can jump in because I just had this experience this week. So I'm part of a fantasy baseball league for 25 years with a bunch of Harvard Law School graduates. I didn't go to Harvard Law School, but I, but, you know, <laughs> I got somehow roped into this. You conned your way in. I conned my, exactly, I conned my way in. But uh, great bunch of guys. It's a band of brothers, you know, David French, who I think it was on this podcast a while ago. He's part of that group. Every year we get together in person from all across the country to do our draft of our fake baseball team. But really, it's to be together, to share our lives, to joke together, to re- reunite, re-embrace as this band of brothers. We do this every year. We didn't do that this past year because of the pandemic. So there's a great loss for all of us. It's, it's something we look forward to really every year. And recently, in our email correspondence throughout the week, I was sharing about this Christian and the Vaccine Project. And it immediately triggered the response of one of the folks in the league who leans right, kind of rugged individualist, he actually got COVID earlier, shrugged it off. So it was, you know, I've had flus worse than that. And I don't believe, I'm suspicious of the vaccine. I think this is being pushed on us. I think they cut corners in the speed to develop it. 
I don't buy it. And so immediately, a bunch of other folks in the baseball league chimed in with emails, with charts, with graphs, facts, and figures. This guy just dug in even further and was just get, getting more and more resistant. And finally, I chimed in and I said, look, let's call him Jake. I'm going to call him Jake for now. So you know, I said, look, Jake, I get it. I get why you don't think you need it for yourself, you know, and, and why the, you're, not, you're not afraid of the flu. So I'm asking you to consider taking the vaccine, not because you need to do it, but because I need you to do it. And the reason is because, Jake, out of the 10 risk factors for developing complications of COVID, I have two of them. So I'm at risk. What's going to happen at our next draft? I want to be able to re-embrace you. I want to be able to, to lean close to you and share our inside jokes again. I want to be able to get back to normal with you. If I know you're somebody who is very can take the virus and shrug it off, there's a likelihood you're an asymptomatic carrier of the virus. Even if I take the vaccine, I'm still not at a, I'm not bulletproof, right? The vaccines are 60, 70%, you know, depending on which one you which studies you look at and which vaccine you take, but somewhere in that it's not perfect. I'm not sure I can run the risk of being together with you. So, now of course, you you've got to make that decision for yourself. It's your decision. I'm not trying to guilt trip you into doing that. So you make this decision for yourself. Just when you factor everything in, don't forget about me. And so that was my appeal. And what was, what was fascinating was that the tone changed immediately in our electronic conversation. And he responded and said, okay, look, can you give me some more information about the safety of the vaccine? And then I was able to share a whole bunch of information about the safety of the vaccine, about, then he asked about the efficacy. How do we know it's uh, efficacious? I shared a whole bunch of information. Suddenly he's receptive because his heart wants to go there. So his head is now finally willing to actually entertain some information. But, but our relationship, our heart connection has been reestablished. And then by the end of the day, literally by the end of the day, he wrote back an email and just said, I'm probably going to take the vaccine. You know, there, I said it. But I'm not going to hug that guy. Uh, you know, so this is why I'm absolutely convinced the relationship plus information is the key formula here. It's been fascinating to me as a journalist, the way that people seem to process this issue differently than almost anything I've ever covered, other than, I guess, snowstorms and hurricanes. This one, everybody is looking at it through the lens of how does this affect me personally? How much snow am I going to get on my lawn and when do I get my vaccine and what will it do to me with my personal health conditions, my personal life circumstances? It's not like anything else where they're wondering about how it's going to affect their neighbors or their country. And the questions I get are so different. It's been fascinating how people are really wrestling with the ethics of not what should the policy be, but what should I do in my personal situation? You know, let me tell you about this set of factors my life looks like XYZ. Should I get the vaccine? Am I taking a vaccine from someone who needs it more? I've heard that quite a lot. People are really trying to place themselves in, in a really difficult situation. It's not like the government has answered these questions for us. The government has given us a crazy patchwork of different policies in different places that have not reassured people that they're doing the right thing. People really mm -hmm. want to feel like they're doing something they can be proud of. <laughs> and that that message is not out there. The message that the vaccine is safe and the vaccine is available or not available to you, that's out there. But are you doing the right thing? That's really hard for a lot of people. That's such an important point. And, and the way in which we are constructing what is right 
is at play here, which is why this is for so many people. I mean, I would say ultimately is for everyone a spiritual issue, regardless of what spiritual you know framework you use. It's because it's an issue of right. It's an issue of how do I make decisions? What do I value? And 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 this is where I think the evangelical church, I think, is reaping, I think, its theological deficiencies because it has constructed so much about its very message to be so highly individual. It is about you and God, your relationship with God. You won't believe that. And this is actually gets to the thing that was surprising to me was how much of the resistance to my message ended up boiling down to, I prayed about it. God told me not to take the vaccine. Therefore, I'm not going to take the vaccine. Like, that's it. Conversation over. Right. Like, what do you what do you say that? And but that's actually we're in that exchange. We are reaping the deficiencies of evangelical theology and preaching for decades where we basically said that's what it's about. (laughs) It's about you and God and you and God alone. And the single defining authority is what you perceive subjectively in your moment with God. And I'm working hard to to try to actually deconstruct that because I think it is such a deficient way for a Christian to be in the world. And it's a completely deficient rendering of the gospel. But we're realizing this is what we're up against. It's provocative to me that your argument, the strongest argument for coming across the line was the idea that I need you. If you don't, then I'm going to be deficient. So it's a sort of a a need being expressed as opposed to rational data and knowledge-based information alone. And of course, Larry Summers has said that when this sort of large story is written in 100 years, the West will have lost on COVID and the East will have won on COVID. David Wallace-Wells has a piece this week as well suggesting that, sort of how the West lost COVID. Is there, as you think about sort of correctives that do come from part of a, being part of a religious community, if you look at Israel and their vaccination rate today, if you look at the Latin American, African, Asian world today, is there a sort of corrective that is visible in broader global religion against our individual Western mores? I'm going to let the religion reporter tackle that one. I, I I have not been a religion reporter in a while, but I will say, looking at some of these other countries and saying, why can they achieve those kind of numbers that we can't? It's helpful also to look much closer to home and look at West Virginia. They're doing a great job compared to most of the rest of the U.S. And part of why they're doing it is that they're doing it so much more simply. They're not putting these questions on people of, oh, is it right? to seek out a vaccine at the pharmacy in the next county over? Am I doing something wrong? Do the people there need it more? Am I doing something wrong if I try to get at this point in the line based on my job or at this point? Like, They're not making people ask so many questions. They're doing it in a very centralized way. It says, okay, we know who everyone is and we're going to tell you when it's your turn and you get your shot. They can do that. There's no real reason that other states in the U.S. can't do that, except that there have been mixed messages all along from the federal government to states and states to cities. And there's been a lot of bad communication here, but I think we can still to some extent rescue this and make things much more streamlined. Do you think we will, you know, six months from now, or let's say 12 months from now, will we get to that 70 to 90%? What's your prognostication? (laughs) I, I'm scared of making predictions. I think I tend to be fairly cynical about some of the predictions we've heard that sound really rosy. The idea that vaccines are going to be available to every adult in America on May 1st. I think that there's going to be political pressure to open the appointment system such that 
any adult technically is eligible. Do I think that any adult's going to be able to walk into a pharmacy and get a shot? No way. I hope I'm proven wrong, but I think we are far from out of the woods here. What else, Curtis, is good for you, the project? Julie, can you guys go one, one last round with anything that's sort of valuable to hold up? What's of interest? Well, can I just make one final plug for, for people for the videos resource? Would that be Of course, although we might want to do it at the very end if, if, if Julie's got one more. Okay, yeah, you, Julie, you, you, tell, you tell me, Julie, but is there one more sort of angle on, on some of this? I mean, I could ask you about D.C. schools or wards, you know, some numbers being able to get at bigger numbers than others. But is there, talk to, do you have one more sort of thought range for Curtis as well? Or? Yeah, I was wondering if for people who are listening to this who have not checked out the videos yet, obviously they're going to finish this podcast and go do that. But I wonder if it would be helpful to preview that a little bit. And we've talked about some of the questions people have, like, is this the mark of the beast or you know, various questions? I wonder if we haven't talked enough about the answers. Would you be able to give a little preview of how you reassure people who've seen some of these messages out there that vaccine's a bad idea for them? Yeah, well, each one of them is different, so I, I don't think I have, have won't go through all of them. I do encourage people to check them out. They're all about six to twelve minutes, and the questions are: How can you tell about fake news? How can Christians know this isn't government control? Pro-life Black Americans and the issue of Tuskegee and so forth. There's a variety of different issues. I think the key move, though, I would say that I'm trying to get them Christians to do is to think biblically about this issue, not to think reflexively with their political priming that's been happening or their just personal fears. But I'm really trying to lift them up to think, let's, as Christians, think the way we were trained to and commanded to think, both in trusting God, trusting each other, and willing to change, willing to actually entertain. That's what the Christian message is about, is repentance. It's the idea that we are all people who are prone to thinking wrongly, and we need to be corrected on that. That's that's a human, that's true for every human being, it's true for every Christian. And so with the vaccine, how could it not be any different that all of us, myself included, we need repentance. We need some way to get our minds thinking more biblically, uh, godly about this. And I want to actually also say that I guess I want to issue an invitation to the listeners here, which I imagine some of the listeners are journalists and people who cover religion or religion adjacent issues, to really invite them to actually think about looking at the issue of the vaccine really in the ways that we've been talking about from a religious angle. I think, like I said, the pathway to ending the pandemic goes through religion. And it goes through evangelicals especially, but it goes through religion. And any coverage and analysis that fails to at least factor that in, I think is missing a key part of the picture. So I just want to invite folks to actually bring religion back into the public square, bring it back into the public journalism, because we're not going to get home until that happens. Thanks so much, Curtis. We'll link to the Christians in the Vaccine videos in the show notes. Julie, to your live chat. Maybe we'll see Christians in the Vaccine live chats in the future, but really appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much. Faith Angle exists to connect leading journalists with faith-based practitioners, pastors, and scholars. Thanks for listening.